The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. Our guest today is Jim Rex. Jim is the former Secretary of Education and the 2010 gubernatorial candidate in the great state of South Carolina. Today, Jim is, he is here as the chairman of the Alliance Party of U, the USA. The Alliance Party is a new political movement. The party's manifesto describes itself as a political reform movement whose singular goal is to dramatically transform our dysfunctional partisan democracy of extremism into a functional democracy driven by innovative and term-limited political leaders. Unlike the duopoly, the Alliance Party aims not to move the country left or right, but forward to create a revitalized, world-leading United States. Let's call it America 2.0. And as you know, that's a goal we share at Reimagine America. We want a 21st century America that is greater than 20th century America, an America which is innovative, creative, economically strong and sustainable, climate friendly, and socially integrated. A century we'll be glad to leave in the capable hands of our children. Jim, thank you so much for being with us again. You know, the last time we were together, we talked about just what a mess the 2020 election is. And we sort of left it at thinking that, you know, we know we've, we've done our diagnosis of what's wrong in 2020 with the duopoly, with the lack of critical thinking, with the you know, millions of of choose your own facts, media, uh, silos, et cetera. So what are we going to do to fix the problem starting the day after election? We've got to create a different framework, a different platform upon which to begin (coughs) to build the 2024 choices that we hope we will have. And so I thought maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit about the constitutional versus traditional pieces of our election system, that it might be easier. It, It truly would be easier. It should be easier, rather, to mend the Constitution than to break apart in four years the duopoly that has caused so much damage to that constitution. You know, there are many states, as you know, from your work with the Alliance Project, which are trying to do things to change the concept of politicians choosing their voters. Why don't we start there? Why don't we start with the fact that we know the outcome of this election in 2020 would, barring every pollster in the business uh, needing to find a new job, that if we didn't, if we were, if we voted for uh, the president as, you know, the guy who got the most votes or girl who got the most votes, 
that this election would be much more predictable. But that's not how we do it. We do it through something called the Electoral College. And we cannot change that without a constitutional amendment. And what do you think the chances are that we could get three-fourths of these 50 states to agree to eliminate the Electoral College and thus their significance in the electoral process? Right now, zero. <laughs> zero percent chance of that. Um, oh. Yeah, you know, the, many of the changes that you touched on and, and others that we may have a chance to talk about um, are going to be very difficult to bring about with the people that are in, in office now, representing the two parties and with the ideological uni unity that they have around their, their different parties. And many of the changes, if not all of them, advantage or disadvantage one party or the other. So there's a sort of built-in resistance to the changes and reforms that we're probably going to talk about. The, the Constitution has remarkable ideas in it, especially for its time. You know, we were the first really large democracy on the planet, and the Founding Fathers didn't have a lot of other good examples to look at, especially in terms of trial and error, what worked and what didn't. And they did, they did a remarkable job, um, but uh, they were not infallible and they couldn't, they didn't have a crystal ball. They couldn't look two centuries into the future and see the challenges that their new democracy was gonna be faced with. And on top of that, uh, the things that we've talked about in your earlier broadcasts uh, have come into play and taken some of those good ideas and really bastardized them. You, for example, you've mentioned the separation and definition of powers. Great idea, executive, judicial, legislative. Um, the executive branch, though, was not intended to become a monarchy, a monarchy branch. Uh, and it is over time, not just under Donald Trump, but over time, it has become more and more an office that has an incredible power, well beyond what I think the Constitution or the Founding Fathers intended. You know, declare war without Congress credible use of executive orders, lack of transparency, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that, Jim, is the fact that Congress, that members of Congress have, acceded, have ceded that power, the war-making power, the absolute budgeting power. Right. They've ceded some of that to the, to the um, executive by not resisting those attempts to usurp their power. Well, you're right, and that, you know, that other branch, the legislative branch, is more interested now in representing their party, whoever is in charge, whoever has the majority, in representing their party and some groups of special interests than they are the common good of the people. And of course, as we've talked about many times, because we don't have term limits, uh, they want to stay in office virtually for a lifetime and they don't want to take controversial votes if they don't have to because that could jeopardize their ability to get reelected. So the legislature is not doing what the founding fathers intended it to do. And then the judicial branch, my God, do we need to say much more than what we're observing right now, was not intended to be partisan. It was not intended to represent one party ideology versus another. But of course, that's what it has become. So the the basic ideas were, were good, 
doesn't mean they didn't need to be changed and modified over time, but they were basically good, but they've been bastardized by the two-party system. So they, that indeed they have. So the problem as I see it is we're going to have to get some different types of people into some of these key elected roles if we're going to seriously challenge and bring about the kind of reforms we need. And right now, that's not likely to happen because any of the changes that you and I talk about or any of your listeners talk about inevitably disadvantage or advantage one party or the other. So there's built-in opposition to the kind of change. So we've got to start electing some, some different types of candidates. And um, that's necessary, but not sufficient. We've also got to push these reforms. But to think that the people who are in power now are going to embrace these reforms and bring them about, I think, is naive. It's not going to happen. And, well, you can see it. California was the first state by initiative process to uh, say we're going to take um, dist redistricting out of the hands of the legislature and have a nonpartisan commission um, do the redistricting. And immediately the Democrats grabbed on to um, the Civil Rights Act, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act, and said, oh, well, you've got to create these communities of interest, which meant um, that uh, you, you know, you were still letting to a great extent um, many of our members of Congress choose their voters by saying, well, you know, Sunnyvale has this high population of one ethnic group, so therefore we need to have our own rep, we have to have, you have to account for that in representation, where what I would love to do is just say, you know, because I agree with you, you know, pol all politics is local. So why don't we just count from one end of the state, pick, a, pick an end, I don't care which, from one to 750,000 and say, guess what, folks, you're now a congressional district, figure it out. What, well, what would be wrong with what would be wrong with that with Congress saying to the states, this is how we want to incent you to choose representatives? Well, because I think we can't, it's a step forward from what we have now. That's for sure. Allowing sitting lawmakers to make these decisions and redraw these districts is insane. Because as you have said and many others, the voters should be choosing them. They should not be choosing their voters. So that, that, that has to change. How you get an independent commission, as you were mentioning a minute ago. Is it isn't independent. Yeah, how do, you, how, do you, how do you make it truly independent? Yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe you could get um, some respected organizations. Uh, I think of you know, maybe something like the League of Women Voters or something like, but, but it'd be nice to have groups that try to represent, whether we agree they do or not, but try to represent um, all parties, all positions, all, all ideologies to help pick the members of the independent commission. But then it would be nice also, and this is what I think you're suggesting, to give that independent commission, as independent as you can make it, some guidelines for how they draw these district lines. And kind of the ideal is a straight line. Now, they can't always be straight lines because you can divide a, a city or a town or a village arbitrarily and that causes problems sometimes. So it could wiggle, it could jiggle and wiggle a little bit if it comes right, you know, right to a precinct or a, or a, a city or something else. But 
but to give them some guidelines that they should try to adhere to by and large and not give them total license in terms of how they draw the, the uh, districts. I, 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 it won't be perfect, but it has to be better than what we have now. Well, it has to be because one of the things that you see, or and it's one of the reasons that we have the, the choice at, at the presidential election that we have this year, is that in 2016, only about 13% of registered Republicans and 13 or 14% of registered Democrats participated in the primaries. And in this election, the number was even smaller. Well, I think most most people, even if they don't understand gerrymandering in terms of how it happens every 10 years and all of that, they do understand that they live in a Republican district even if they don't know how that happened, or a Democratic district. So the primary just determines which Democrat or which Republican is going to be in the, in the general election. See, so in California, Calif- yeah, go ahead. Well, I, said, I think that's part of the disincentive to vote in primaries. Well, see, in California, we're even, we make it even more interesting. We have what are called, and Michigan has followed us, followed our law almost identically. Um, And there are about 14 states that are looking at it. Um, And what we do is we have what's called, except at the presidential level. So I I want you to think about that as we go back to talking about the Electoral College. Um, Except at the presidential level, we have what's called a jungle primary. So we can, you can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat, you can be an Alliance Party member, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be independent. Top two finishers go to the general election. So primary elections, while not well utilized in, in California, are an opportunity. But that goes to your point about term limits and innovative candidates. In order, in order to change the duopoly um, in a state like ours, you got to have an electrifying uh, candidate. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger could never have gotten through a Republican uh, primary, yet he was a two-term governor because he approached it um, outside the traditional lines. And so in order for candidates like that to get, you know, we need, we need term limits, okay, so that the people are incentive, incentivized. But we also need people to be willing to come from the private sector into the public sector, which means we need to clean up how we treat people in the public sector. And, and we need people to, and we, and we need people to stay for a reasonable period of time, but not just promote the chairs because this is how they pay their mortgage. (laughs) I'm serious. No, I know. Well, you know, I couldn't agree more. After having been in a constitutional four-year office um, and working with the state legislature in my state, um, you know, I saw with very few exceptions in both parties that the number one priority is to get reelected, is to stay in office. Every, everything else is secondary. And I can tell you the number of times when I would sit individually with a legislator at the state house in their office and talk about the need for a reform in education, for example, and they would agree with me. 
they would say, well, you know, that makes sense, Dr. Rex. But, you know, let me tell you, I've been in this, I've been in this position about 15, 20 years, whatever the number was. And, um, you know, these kinds of changes take a while. Now, let me tell you about the time it, it took, it took 16 years to get this done or 10 years to get that done or eight years to get that done. And here you are talking about doing this sort of change this year or next. Well, that's just kind of unrealistic. And I said, well, you know, your timeline is much different than mine. I'm talking about a, um, a person's childhood. And every uh, human being has one childhood. You, you don't get the chance to do it over. And if we don't make some changes with the way we try to educate people, especially those in disadvantaged areas who don't have access to quality education, and you want to take eight years, nine years, 10 years, that's a generation. We can't wait that long. Well, I see your point. Well, let me just say also this. Um, what you're suggesting is kind of radical, Dr. X. And uh, while I agree with you personally, I can't come out and really publicly support this. Not with, the, not with the folks back home. Now, I might be able to help you in a committee or something, but I, I can't come out publicly and endorse it. If I told you the number of times I had conversations like that with members of both parties and listened to everything being judged and modified by their ability to get reelected and stay in office, you would understand maybe even better than you do now why I'm such an advocate for term limits. Yeah, well, let me give you... But let me give you the, the counter argument I'm, I'm, you know, to, to that, which sure. is in California, we have term limits. And you know what they do? You can have a couple, three terms, I think, in the assembly and two in the state senate. So from the assembly or the board of supervisors, well, you know, if you're on the board of supervisors, you go to the assembly. If, you go, if you're in the assembly, you go to the state senate. Right now, one of, the, one of our board of supervisors members is trying to make the leap of to the Senate, um, and I'm I'm not certain he's going to get there. But um, you know the the incentives don't change with those term let limits. Me, let me interject something. You're talking about a different type of term limit than I am. I'm talking about a cumulative term limit, and this is what the Alliance Party requires of all of its candidates for state or federal legislative offices. Any lawmaker, okay. It's a total, doesn't make a difference which level. It's a total of 12 years. That's it. You're right. Right now, if you look at the profile of our uh, legislators, most of them have walked up that staircase that you're describing. They served a number of years in the state house, and they all waited for the senator in their district to either move up, retire, die, or get kicked out because of a scandal. And then they all clamored to fill that position. So they're all in a holding pattern for the next level. And what they do is they move from level to level, from the state to, the, to Congress, to the US Senate. They bring their special interest money with them and they bring their obligations to that special interest money with them. So yeah, they may, may only serve a few terms at this level and then a few more years at that level and then a few more, but by the time you add it all together, they've been in office 30, 40 years. That's not the kind of term limits I'm talking about. It's not term limited by position, it's a total of no more than, than 12 years. So that's two terms if you go to the U.S. Senate. It's uh, maybe only one term in the Senate if you've already served six years in a lower, in a lower house. Well, but that would require a constitutional amendment. 
Well, it, it would, but in the meantime, if you have a party, which is what we're, the approach we're using, that requires that, we, we have a candidate agreement. You cannot run under our banner. We will not allow you to run under our banner unless you sign this agreement. It's not just term limits, it's also transparency, which is you have to publicize your tax returns from the previous three years on your uh, campaign website. And while in office, if you're elected, you have to publicize any outside sources of income while you're in office, as well as the source, the amount and the source of that income. If you wanna run in our party, you have to sign that agreement. You have to adhere to it in order to run again under our banner. And we've already started to collect money for a fund because we know human nature. We're assuming at some point, someone will sign this agreement. This will happen 12 years out, obviously. And they'll decide, you know, really like these perks. I know I signed the agreement. I said no more than a total of 12 years, but I want to run again. And if I can't run as a, an alliance party, I'll run as a Republican or as a Democrat or as an independent. What we have promised them and what we've publicized to them in the agreement is that we will not only run someone against you, but our platform will be that your word cannot be trusted, that you're not, uh, you're not a trustworthy candidate, your promises mean nothing, and it will be an extremely well-funded uh, campaign against you because we're actually raising money for that day when it happens. So you don't have to wait for the Constitution to be amended. We've got political parties that take no responsibility for their candidates. They have, you know, if, if you buy a computer or a car or anything else, there's a certain warranty on it. That, you know, if it breaks, if it's, if it's malfunctioning, uh, you know, there's some recourse. These two political parties, no matter what we catch their candidates doing, or no matter how inept they are, they take no responsibility for it. Uh, unless they go to prison, and even then sometimes they let them run again when, they, when, they, you know, when they're accused. So this is a way for a party to say to voters, if you want a different type of candidate, if you want someone who's interested in public service, not in having a career in politics, you can have that kind of candidate, but you've got to vote for them and quit voting for the things that don't work and that disgust you. I think that's commendable. But one of the problems you're going to run in, that you run into when you say, you know, the candidate doesn't always do what he's should do in, in our current system is you go back to those primaries. Ben Sass, for example, um, has been distancing himself from Trump because he knows he's, his general election path is quite smooth. He's popular in the state. He's not particularly popular with some elements of the Republican Party who threatened him with a challenge from the right in the primary. And so it is, again, that small, extreme partisan group in the primary that is so influential. Even in California's jungle primary, you sometimes end up with two Democrats running against each other in the general or two Republicans running against each other. And they are, you know, the objective was to get more moderate candidates. So far, it has failed to do that. So, you know, what you're proposing um, might change that because after 12 years, that 
particular candidate's got to go back into the community from which he comes for at least some, or she comes from at least, for at least some period of time. Well, it'd be nice to have legislators, especially legislators. Now, this is focused on people who make laws that influence all of our lives. It'd be nice if they periodically had to go back and live under the laws they, they passed and created and get yeah. out of the bubble, the artificial bubble they live in. The other thing I need to point out to you is that the Alliance Party in every state that allows it uses a convention as opposed to a primary to get away from the Russian roulette outcomes that come from primaries. But the people, again, you're trying to appeal to a to what's today the disaffected middle because... Well, not just the middle, the disaffected for sure, but now I wouldn't say just the middle. Okay. Those 26% that gave us the choice between Hillary and Trump in 2016 and the choice between Trump and Biden this year, okay, are not likely to be adherence to the more, the less partisan focus of the Alliance Party. Am I right? I don't know. You know, when you poll term limits, they're, they're wildly um, popular. popular. When you poll transparency, you know, showing your tax returns, uh, reporting your outside sources of income, you know, what, why are you voting the way you're voting? Who do you, who do you have special uh, alliances with as a lawmaker? They're, those are pretty popular things. And I think they're popular among people who describe themselves as conservatives, as well as people who describe themselves as liberals or progressives. So I, I don't know that those are necessarily appealing just to the middle. I think they make sense. But my point, yeah. my point earlier, Joyce, was I think, and you know, th this is a great experiment trying to change this system that we're both concerned about. I think that if we can start electing some of these kinds of people to come in and look at the needs to bring about some of the reforms that we've talked about, I think they will be likely to vote for them. For one reason, they're not going to be in there for 25, 30, and 40 years. And so they're, they're going in with the intention of having a career in public service, but go, coming back to private life. And that, that makes a big difference. I mean, that's why I went into office. I, I ran for office when I was 65 years old for the first time. I was never interested particularly in becoming an elected official. But at 65, I was talked into it for a variety of reasons, which we don't need to go into. But, but I knew that I was going to go in for at least one, one term, four years, maybe that was it. And I needed to get some stuff done. So I had a sense of urgency, number one. But more importantly than that, I was willing to take positions that I believed had to be taken, even if it meant risking losing the next election if I decided to run again. That's what I don't see any, that's what I didn't see when I was in office with the people I was describing these conversations with. Even when they knew what the right thing to do was, even when they knew that there were needs that were not being addressed and changes that had to be made, they were not willing to do it because they had to get reelected. And they had to, because if you're going to be a career politician, by definition, you have to get reelected. Otherwise, you cannot be a career politician. Yeah, you you know, once you start drinking at the public trough for a career, you know, you paying your mortgage depends on re-election and that leads to pandering instead of, um, you know, 
participating in the pro in progress. And, and so the other, the other thing, just just to I agree a, with you there. Just to put a final bow on on the term limit, uh, pros and cons, and it's like anything, it has pros and cons. But in South Carolina, in November, we have five candidates running out of the Alliance Party, uh, one for our state senate and and um, the others for the state house for the state legislature. All of them have signed that agreement that I mentioned on term limits. Mm -hmm. All of them have put their tax returns up on their campaign websites. All of them have, you know, agreed to the other things in the agreement, which has to do with civility and truthfulness and other things that are also important, but harder to measure. What I've, what I've discovered working with this party is that one of the most powerful things about term limits is the fact that there are people who decide not to run under your party because of them. It's, it's, a, it's a screening device almost, if you will. You, what, what I have found is that, yeah, you do have some people who say, well, no, I, you know, I want to be in politics for 30 years. You say, well, fine. This is not the party you, you need to affiliate with if that's your goal. But if you're interested in public service, and if serving for more than a decade, 12 years, you feel is sufficient, come talk to us about what we expect of you as a candidate. And what we expect of them is not ideological consistency. We don't tell them what their positions have to be on a whole bunch of issues. We have, we have the manifesto, we have direction, which we hope they'll, you know, they'll take. But we get specific about our behaviors, term limits, transparency, honesty, civility, because words are cheap, especially in politics. What people really care about and what they're so disgusted with, I think, are the people who say one thing and do the other. And right now, both parties are full of people that do that. Whatever it takes to get reelected. Lindsey Graham is running here in my state. He's a classic example of it, but he's not alone. And so when I talk about electing a different type of candidate, and finding a way to attract those kinds of people to run for public office as one way to bring about the changes that you and I are both agreeing need to bring, be brought about. I think term limits, it's not the answer, it's not a silver bullet, but I think it's an important piece. I think you're probably right. There's another limit that I wanna talk about though. Both Senator Grassley and Senator Feinstein are as old as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was when she unfortunately passed away. Should there be age limits? Well, if you had term limits, that wouldn't be as big a deal. You know, um, if you had term limits, unless you had somebody getting elected at, you know, the ripe old age of 80 or something, uh, 12 years would. And, you know, we do have, we do have term limits uh, on really important positions like presidencies and governorships. I don't know why we think it makes sense for those positions, but not for lawmakers. Um, so I, I think term limits would, would take care of that issue in most cases. I, I'm hesitant to say there ought to be an age limit, maybe because I've gotten older. But yeah, so I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> there, is something, there is something called wisdom, and there's tremendous variations among individuals. I mean, you can see some people at the age of 80 who are sharp, physically, you know, healthy, not just intellectually. And then you can see other people at the age of 40 who you wouldn't want to trust with any complex decision-making. So I, I worry a little bit about age. I would, I would rather make it uh, years of service. 
term limits. I think that makes that makes sense. Um, that's something that ought to get due consideration. But if we go back to um, what everybody is at the moment so concerned with the electoral college, and we talk about the fact that we, you know, let's make the assumption there's no way in the world that three fourths of the states are going to agree to an amendment. I can where you're where you're sitting in South Carolina, and there ain't no way they're going to vote to eliminate the electoral college because it gives them power. Where in California, we we would vote to get rid of it, you know, because it would give us power that we don't today have. Mm-hmm. But, but, but is there another way? I know there's this compact that says, well, you know, um, uh, if, if we can get 26 states to agree that, you know, the person, who, the candidate who wins the um, popular vote, well, our electors will have to vote for um, is, um, I think, a, um, would be found unconstitutional. Uh, because it directly violates the Electoral College, um, even though some people believe it would be constitutional because each state would, would, through its legislature, say, that's the way I want to pick my electors. But you and I have talked about, I have a different idea, and that is that we should select electors by congressional district. So in California, you wouldn't get, if you're a Democrat, you wouldn't get 53 uh, electoral votes, you get about 32. And the rest of them would go to the Republican. Um, because our a big part of our state landmass is quite red, even though the cities are not. Um, I think that would be true in South Carolina, too, where the low country appears to be moving away from the Republican Party, uh, where you would actually have a Democratic elector that you don't have now. The same is true in Texas. If you divided Texas up, Houston would probably uh, have Democratic electors and Austin and Dallas would probably have Republican electors, et cetera, just by, for example. And that would turn the election without a constitutional amendment into a 50-state election because you'd have to make up the vote you lose in one state in another. What do you think of that idea? I like it. I think uh, it's a great example of not letting perfection get in the way of good. That would be a good reform. It may not See be that? perfect as doing away with the Electoral College, but it would, it would accomplish many of the same goals. And I think there are two states right now, Joyce, uh, Maine for sure, mm-hmm. the other one is Nebraska, where they already do that. Mm-hmm. I know in Maine, because we have, we have our presidential candidate on the ballot in Maine, they award electors by the congressional districts, and we're um, we're trying to get, help him win a historical vote, which would be winning one electoral vote in Maine. And there has never been a presidential candidate other than a Republican or Democrat who's ever won an electoral vote. That's how rigged the system is presently. So, yeah, I think that would be a great step forward. Now, all we have to do is figure out how to turn it into law. Because it would meet some resistance in California, um, as I'm sure it would in the Carolinas. But I think it's an idea worthy of consideration. And last but not least, because we're in the midst of what is a consequential battle for the Supreme Court, where do we go with these lifetime appointments that are increasingly political in nature? 
you know, we used to go for good judges. Now we, now we go for judges who agree with, you know, whatever, um, well, with whatever political party is in uh, office at the, in the Senate at the time. Well, you know, I think it's really telling that over the decades that the United States has been the chief advocate for democracy um, on the planet. We have sent teams of people to third world countries and others that want to create a representative democracy or improve the one they have. And it's really telling when you look at what our ambassadors, these teams of ambassadors for democracy have said to these other countries, and maybe more importantly, what they haven't recommended. They never recommend an electoral college, by the way, in any other democracy that's being set up. They never recommend that they have only a two-party system. They never recommend anything that looks like gerrymandering. They never recommend winner-take-all voting. And they never recommend lifetime appointments for, for, the, for judges and judiciary because of the corruption, the politicization that can take place with lifetime appointments. So when we talk to other people about how to do it well and how to have a truly representative government that functions for the majority of people and for the common good, they don't throw into the models in these new countries, these new democracies that we labor under now. So I think um, I, I would like to see term limits on the judges. And, you know, it, exactly what the number would be, uh, you know, I don't know, but maybe let's say uh, no more than two six-year terms. Uh, that'd be 12 years again. Maybe, maybe I'm hung up on that, but I think doing something for over a decade, well over a decade, is pretty good. And, and maybe there would be some um, external group, maybe law school um, faculty or law school deans or someone else who can judge the judicial expertise that's been exhibited by that person during their time on the bench and allow them to run for an additional term if they get a certain rating. It'd be nice to have something that was merit-based, not just politically based, which is what we have now. So term limited and then some kind of a, uh, a rating system or judged by a quote-unquote independent knowledgeable group that can give the uh, citizens some idea of how that person has performed. You know, I agree with you about the tenure limits. Let me offer you a little different take on it. Yeah. I, I could see the Supreme Court, because it is a be, be all, end all, every man is equal under the law, blind justice place in our system. I could see leaving the lifetime service on the judiciary or say a single 20 year term. But that would mean that the candidates would have to serve at the appellate level for at least a decade. So that when Congress evaluated and a president evaluated their merit for a appointment to the Supreme Court, there was a long judicial record that we had seen them in leadership and in uh, the minority that we had seen, we had a long record of, judici of judicial decisions upon which to evaluate their qualifications, their independent judgment for the, a seat on the Supreme Court. What do you think I about that? that? I think there ought to be those kinds of prerequisites for them to be considered. I agree. 
and and then on top of that, say um, eighteen years, twenty years, and you're out. You know that would get them out by the time they're eighty. <laughs> <laughs> and Justice Breyer is about eighty-three. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I think that you know that's a concern when you look at people like Gorsuch and and um, Kavanaugh. Uh, and let's set aside all the shenanigans around Kavanaugh, um, who was the last desperate vote, supposedly. Um, both of them have long appellate records. Al Alito, long appellate record. Roberts, long, uh, uh, Ginsburg, uh, more than 10 years at the appellate level. So that you have a really good idea of that person's ability to look at the specifics of the law and understand, and, and you, you can judge how they've applied it. No, I agree 100%. I mean, it's like you're saying, you're not gonna draft somebody to play in the NFL if they haven't played in, in college and high school prior to that, so you can look at their record. The and played thing. well, and yes. played well. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta look at, you got sure. But, but We're but in I, the majority I, half the time. Yeah. But I was just trying to address your original question, which once they're appointed, and it will be a political process when they're initially appointed, because of the way things are set up now, they have some kind of limitation as to how long they can serve. Because if they're appointed at a relatively young age, as we both know, they can be there 40 years or more. And with the kind of power that that person has, um, that, that's that's that has too much too much influence for too long, I think. Well, you you know, before we have our next conversation about what kinds of reforms ought to come out of the current election, and I've got a list. Um, I, I've got to look and see if whether or not the lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court might in fact be in the Constitution. And, and if it is, then again, we're kind of not going to get to three-fourths of the states being willing to change that. It's not in their best interest. Um, but, but definitely the lower courts, we could manage the process, you know, through legislation. You know, that's a good question, Joyce. I don't know either. My guess is it was, if, if it is, it was added. I don't think in, initially it was lifetime appointment, but maybe so. And an attempt. Yeah, well, the irony is it was an attempt, obviously, to keep the judges independent and not, you know, not swayed by partisanship. And but you know, both have noted that that has not worked. And as as we as we kind of bring this conversation to a close, one of the remarkable things is two hundred years later, we can still make this tool work for the American people. Yes, that's remarkable. Um, but, but we, we need to give context to things like longer life expectancy. Um, the, the, you know, the fact that we're a much smaller country while we're bigger geographically, we're much smaller because of the improvements in transportation, um, and in, uh, various methods of communication, et cetera. 
But I've got one last thought to leave you with, and then we'll talk about what are we going to talk about the next time we get together. And that is, do you think having the Capitol in Washington, where everything happens, you know, like if, if you want to watch the Barrett hearing, you have to get up at 5.45 in the morning because it starts at 9 o'clock, which is 6 o'clock our time. It's dark out. So I'm going to, I'm going to admit that I wasn't there at, at 9 o'clock Eastern time. Um, do you think it would make a difference if the capital of the country were more geographically centered in the country? It probably would, but gosh, I would hate to do, do, do that to a nice, clean, habitable Midwestern city. Yeah, I, I'm not suggesting that we do it. I suggest, you know. <laughs> I'm in all of those yeah. lobbyists and all of those yeah. special interest groups would move and all those attorneys and all those groups would move to whatever that new city is and ruin and it. And Washington, Washington would become affordable. Um, <laughs> but, but wherever they were, wouldn't be. The, the interesting thing, you know, as, as we bring this conversation to a close is, do you notice that when we go to another country and talk to them about setting up a democracy, we say, here are all the lessons we learned. Don't do what we do. Exactly. And as I said, uh, I think maybe it was one of the other programs, our founding fathers didn't have those examples, those trials and errors that we now should be benefiting from after a couple of hundred years. And they did a remarkable job. But now we know there's a whole bunch of things that don't work, either, either as they were you know, supposed to work or as un under present conditions. So we got to figure out a way to make those changes. And I think part of, the, part of the answer to that, as I've said too many times probably, is we've got to start electing some different types of people to public office. We have to attract different people to, public, to running for public office. And that means we need to change the terms and conditions of how we run campaigns. Yep. And, and, and last but not least, George Washington told us what to do. We didn't listen. And I always remind people, George never told a lie. No, George was right. And on that happy note, I'll look forward to talking to you after the election is over about what are the lessons we learned in 2020 and what reforms could Congress implement in the first few weeks of the uh, next congressional session. Joyce, that sounds good. Please stay safe and healthy between now and then, and keep your sanity as we get through this next election. Oh, I'm sure you and I will have conversations between now and then, but we want to leave the audience with something to look forward to. And in the meantime, to everyone listening out there, thank you for your time, your attention, and please vote. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, 
Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.